your hands and give Dr. Painter a warm APC welcome. Would you welcome him to this pulpit to preach yesterday? good to see former and current students. Um, this uh, church here in Bloomington is, has, been, has blessed the Urshan um, community for uh, a good long while. Uh, going back at least, I think Aaron back in 2012 um, was a student there and, and probably even further back. So thank you for your support of Urshan college and I'm so glad to be with you. What a lovely city you're in. Is it always this nice or are you just showing off? It's so beautiful, the, the fall weather. Um, uh, we're going to have a good time in the Word today. Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5 and then Romans 8 verses 28 through 30. We'll read two passages of scripture. Romans 6, 1 through 5. What shall we say then? The Apostle Paul asks. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like is Christ. And everyone said, like is Christ. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection you hear the theme of likeness. Now, chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed, that is, to be made like, to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Amen. I would like to stitch these two passages of Scripture together, and I would like to preach this morning on the subject of being like the sun, like the sun, the image of the sun. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless our time in your word. Bless this message from the Apostle Paul. I pray for your help. I pray for your guidance. Lord, I pray that everything that is said from this pulpit would be true 
and glorifying to your name and edifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said amen. Amen. Bless you. You may be seated. I'd like to draw special attention to the Apostle Paul's use of the past tense in the text that we read. His repeated use of the past tense even for actions or to describe actions that would seem to be for future times and in our future rather than something done in our past or something that is a reality right now. Particularly, it says, whom he did predestinate, he called. That makes perfect sense in past tense. A calling is something uh, that might have happened in our past. Whom he called, them he also justified. And that is past tense. Your being made righteous before God is a past tense action. And if you have trouble reconciling that with the way you often feel, unjustified, unrighteous, buckle up. Because he says, whom he justified, them he also glorified. Past tense. Now, I often don't feel justified, and I sure don't feel glorified. Uh, it's a very rare moment, I must say. And yet, he insists on speaking of this as past. As past. And this is the mystery that I would like to unlock. The, uh, the Apostle Paul has spoken of being conformed to the image of God's Son. In fact, this was the entire purpose of the incarnation and the gospel of Jesus Christ that we might be conformed to the image of God's Son. Conformity is not, and I stress not, something our culture is particularly comfortable with. Being conformed often means something being imposed upon you from the outside something that you might not want to be, but you, for purposes of convenience or for economical reasons or social reasons, go ahead and change your ways, or at least appear to. Conformity. Conformity. And yet here, at the heart of the gospel, is a reminder that we have been called to be conformed to the image of God's Son conformed to the image of God's Son. That is, something that is imposed upon us and we're to grow into almost feels like a mask we're being asked to wear. And I want to talk to you about masks. Masks in our culture, in our language, are often metaphors for hiding. 
we wear a mask. But underneath, underneath, there might be a whole different reality. But we'll put a mask on. We use it sometimes to speak of what we do with our problems. We mask our problems. In other words, when we deploy the word mask, we often mean it negatively. But I'm speaking today of its positive nature. In the early 1900s, there was a Russian theater playwright uh, by the name of Konstantina Stanislavsky. And he invented a whole new way of acting for the theater. Now, going back to ancient Greek times on the ancient Greek stage, typically you would have one to three actors, no more, for an entire drama. A character or an actor might rather step onto the stage and then take a mask and hold the mask up to his face and then speak through the persona of that mask. For instance, if he was playing the part of the Greek god Dionysus. You might speak of Dionysus in the third person when you're not wearing the mask, but when you step on stage and you're playing the part of that particular character, you put on the mask and suddenly you're no longer speaking of Dionysus in the third person, you're speaking of him in the first person. I instead of he. There's this transformation when you put on the mask from third person to first person. It becomes personal. And that one particular actor just chooses different masks to wear in whatever persona he's speaking through. Uh, Acting through the ages was often a matter of putting on a disguise or a costume or a mask. I remember being asked to play various roles in in, theater. Dramas when I was in Christian school back in 7th, 8th, ninth grade, 4th, 5th grade. I remember one particular time I was asked to play a big, big role in a passion play in 6th grade. And we practiced for months and months and months. And, and I always liked, this was one of my favorite things to do because I didn't feel very comfortable in my own, fa- my own face, in my own person. I liked to put on a mask and then I could just sort of be whoever I wanted to be. And so I always looked forward to the yearly or biannual play that we could put on. And I, and I always looked e- forward eagerly to the script that I would be given and, and the, 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 the drama teacher, she would highlight my character. Well, they passed out the part that year. I didn't get to play Jesus. Bummer. He had lots of lines. And then I didn't get to play Peter. He had lots of lines. I looked through all the 12 disciples. I wasn't listed amongst them. I wasn't even going to get to be a Roman soldier. Not Pontius Pilate, not Judas Iscariot. My part was to play a tree. (laughs) A tree. And I had one line. It was highlighted for me. I didn't even have a name. I was just called Little Tree. And so I stood inside of this apparatus, this cardboard tree. And my part was to be not part of the tree that was cut down to make the cross, 
but the tree that was next to that tree. It was a real flattering roll. And my part was to go shh when the wind blew. That was my line. It was a real blow to the ego. I played the part. And here's what we did as kids. You know how you, you, you play Jesus or you play Peter or you play Judas? It's all about the costumes. It's all about the mask that you put on. You can only convince people that you're Peter if you put on the toga, the robe, the sandals, and a fake beard. And beyond that are little tiny voices, our pre-adolescent or pre uh, uh, pre-puberty voices, we, were, we, we couldn't convince anybody, of course, that we were really that part. We couldn't get anyone really to, to, uh, in the audience to engage with us and ever experience the illusion that they were watching any kind of reality whatsoever. It was always and always a play because it was all about the costumes. But there was, a, as I said, over 100 years ago, this Russian theater director who invented a new way of acting for the, for the theater. And he called it method acting. And as a method actor, what you were to do, this was not you becoming the part by merely putting on the costume. You didn't convince people that you were playing a part by the costume you were wearing. You convinced them by becoming the person you were playing. That meant in preparation in the months or even years leading up to playing the part on the stage, you would try to leave your own self behind systematically and develop the voice and the thoughts of the part you were playing so that they became your own voice and your own thought. So what would a character like this, what kind of dreams might he have? What might he say when he's all alone and looking in the mirror and getting ready for the day? What kinds of things might he say? And, and the better you are at merging, at losing yourself in the identity of the part that you're playing, the more you're going to convince the audience and compel them, persuade them, and let them see that the illusion is fading away and something of reality is taking place here. That was the idea. Uh, there is a dark side to this method acting, though. And it has played itself out many times in Hollywood. A character will take a part, and particularly if it's a tragic part, or if he plays the villain, if he is a method actor, he's going to partake of that part so deeply that he might lose himself forever in the part that he's playing. In recent memory, you may recall that uh, a, a Batman trilogy was created and somebody was to play the part of the Joker. Now in previous, uh, uh, previous iterations of Batman, you would go back to, I think his name was Cesar Romero, uh, might have been that, uh, that first Batman. Uh, on the, 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 the TV show from the 1960s and 70s. And, and 
he was just sort of, as his name suggests, a joker. He was all about the smile and about the pranks, and, and he sort of had this giggle. But there was not really anything that convinced us that he was evil. He was more of a Loki character, a kind of a prankster. So uh, Then there was the Jack Nicholson iteration of this particular character, I think in the late 80s or maybe early 90s. And even he, even he had to, they had to put a smile into his face so that it was, it was permanent. And there was always something a little artificial about the part, though apparently he played it quite well. But then this particular director chose a young man who had a very promising career ahead of him, a very good-natured boy. His name was Heath Ledger and chooses him for the part. People heard that there was going to be a Heath Ledger, that Heath Ledger was going to play this part, and he'd always played kind of romantic roles before, and everyone thought, this is a wild choice. This doesn't make any sense. What is this going to be, a romantic joker? What, what is this? Well... In the process, this good-natured, well-mannered boy took on this part. And he was playing a joker that had never been conceived before. This joker was not merely going to be evil in the sense that he was greedy or that he wanted to be, have power in the world. This joker didn't care about power in this world. He didn't care about money in this world. He didn't care about any of those kinds of things. He only wanted to see the world burn. Because he hated, hated from his very essence, everything, everything. And so he tries to enter into this part. How do I become this joker? And he started to lose himself in drugs and alcohol when the camera was on in their recording. He plays this unnerving part. You don't dare want him to look into the camera at the audience because you might be spotted. And then when the camera is off, they say cut and turn off the stage lights. And Heath Ledger walks off of, away from the green, green screen and away from the stage. He couldn't disengage. He didn't become Heath Ledger again, but he stayed in, in character, morning, noon, and night. What might this kind of joker drive like on the road? What kind of dreams and nightmares might he have? What kind of thoughts would he have when he looks in the mirror? This is the kind of joker that doesn't paint a smile upon his face, but cuts one into his face. By the time filming was done, he had so completely lost himself, his family and his friends couldn't find Heath Ledger in there anymore. They, they saw that the part had utterly consumed him. And then it was almost predictable, but before the film was released, he committed suicide. He couldn't disengage from the part. You can enter very deeply into a part you play and on the opposite side of this, there was the actor by the name of Jim Caviezel, who also played a kind of romantic character in film in the 90s and I think early 2000s, and then, and then the passion play, or rather a passion film uh, directed by Mel Gibson, 
Uh, they chose Jim Caviezel for this part. You're going to play Jesus, but we're gonna, we have a different concept. This is not going to be about Jesus' life. This is going to be about his death. And the play is, or the film is really going to start with the passion and end with the passion and just a little bit of a glimpse of the resurrection. And here's what we want you to do. Jesus didn't speak English. We want you to learn Aramaic, the native tongue of Jesus. Your dialogue, your parts, your script is going to be completely in Aramaic because we don't want any kind of English in this. We don't want anything of the modern world in this. We want the viewer to be able to enter into the life of Jesus through this film. And so Caviezel learned Aramaic. And so he would sit down at the breakfast table and he would speak in Aramaic. He would ask to pass the cereal in Aramaic. Everything he did, Aramaic, Aramaic, because he wanted to speak like what Jesus sounded like. And this was, again, a very promising actor who had played in big, big starring roles. But he was warned, when you play Jesus, if you play him faithfully, your acting career is going to change forever. First of all, you're going to have to deal with this psychologically afterwards. Second of all, you're probably not going to get very many more parts to play after this. For Jesus is the final part. Hollywood turned, tends to turn its back on those who play Jesus well. I think that's fitting, isn't it? The servant is not above his master. If they rejected me, they will reject you. That's part of the part you play. So he entered deeply into this. So deeply that on the day that they were filming the crucifixion, from what I understand, temperatures were near freezing. And they put him up there on that cross, but he had to be almost naked up there, just with a loincloth And they filmed and refilmed and refilmed for eight hours. And when there was an opportunity for him to come down from the cross that he was upon and to warm up and to drink some, drink some warm coffee or take in some warm soup, he refused each time to come down. He stayed up there because he wanted to enter deeply into this part. He didn't want to act like he was suffering. He wanted to suffer. Suffer. So he did. He ended up catching hypothermia, and his health has never been the same afterwards. And sure enough, Jim Caviezel, who had starred in many big roles and had a lot of promise, has not yet played in a big role, a starring role since. Hollywood turned its back on him. Play the part of Jesus. There's something like this that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 8. If you will enter deeply into the part of the Son of God, if you will be conformed to his image, which means not merely costume level, but you begin to think like he thought, you talk like he talked, you act like he acted, you suffer like he suffered. This 
is your calling. This is your calling. And it is this part, it is the part that has been called, it is the part that has been justified, and it is the part that has been glorified. And to the degree to which you conform to that part, you are justified and glorified. Um, masks are all around us, the opportunities for masks. They make us. I, I remember it was, it was Oscar Wilde who said that uh, if you really want to get to know a man, wait until he wears his mask and then you can know him. His preferred mask, the mask. You don't really get to know somebody until they wear that mask. For instance... For instance, machines are a kind of mask, technology, a kind of mask that we wear. You get in a car. That's an older form of technological mask. Uh, uh, you get in the car. You drive down the highway. Your only identifier is the make and model and color of your car plus a license plate which doesn't really identify you all that well to the casual observer. And you might find yourself, have you ever found yourself acting differently? in a car than you would act in person? Ever? Have you ever found that there were other people on the road who no doubt were acting differently on the highway than they would act in line at the grocery store? You get behind that car, you put on that mask, and is it artificial what happens, or is there something deep within you that is being made manifest by the mask? And somebody cuts you off in the road, on the highway. Would they do that in the grocery store line? Just, just cut right in front of you like that. And then maybe even, even uh, wave a hand signal at you. Would, would they do that sort of thing in person? See, I don't think so. That mask allows something deep within to emerge. It is not an artificial thing. It is an authenticator. The mask is. Um, this is uh, social media. The, the, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, accounts that you might see on Twitter or YouTube. Uh, look at the comments section in a YouTube at the bottom of a somewhat controversial YouTube video. Just read through the comments and as you get deeper and deeper, you get deep into the seaweed and the barnacles and it gets uglier and uglier the further down you go. And somebody by the name of Jack6789 He's saying some pretty ugly stuff. Now, you can say that stuff from the safety of your mom's basement. But try saying that to somebody face to face. You don't do it. You don't do it. it masks. Masks are amazing. Uh, but on the better side of this, life is all about imitation. From our earliest age, everything that we do well, we have learned by imitation. We had great music up here, great musicians, voices. All of that excellence that you heard this morning was, through, uh, was achieved through a regimen of imitation, a long and sometimes painful process. When I was taught to play the piano, my teacher, when I couldn't quite get the part, she would place her fingers over my fingers and then show me that way. 
When I learned how to write, the teacher would, would put her hand over me, over my hand and teach me how to write that J that was the first letter in my first name. I learned by imitation. Now, if I had just sat down on the piano without a teacher and without the process of imitation, I never ever could have made a tune. The, the, uh, uh, the, the music was achieved by somebody imitating. You don't just want me in the raw to sit down on the piano and start playing. You won't get music that way. You'll get noise that way. All of the excellencies are achieved by imitation. There was, uh, uh, in the 1940s, World War II in Italy, a con man that worked the streets, and really he was more of a pickpocket, uh, in, in Rome. And the Nazis had come to dominate Italy at that point through the leadership of Benito Mussolini. And the Italians, some of them went along with the program, but most of them didn't. And th th there was forming a, an Italian resistance movement that was going underground. And the, the Nazis and their Italian sympathizers were very worried about this Italian res resistance. And so they were trying to figure out a way to find all of the key uh, characters in the Italian resistance. They wanted to find them where they were hiding and where they were meeting and what plans they had. But they, that was such a secretive movement. People were so devoted to it that it was hard to undermine it. And so they came up with a plan and they found this particular pickpocket. They noticed that he was very, very good at, at conning people. And so they, they pulled him aside into an alley and they told him, We've seen what you've done. You're a criminal. And your life is in our hands. And we'll give you one way to live. Or we're going to shoot you right here in this alley. We want you to take a, on a part. You're going to play the part of a certain General Della Rovere. And you're going to gain the sympathy and the loyalty and allegiance of the Italian resistance. And he says, how am I going to do this? He says, Very simple. We're going to give you his biography. You're going to learn everything about him. You're going to develop the accent, the dialect, the mannerisms of an Italian general. And we're going to give you the full biography. And then we're going to put you in prison with the other members of the imprisoned Italian resistance. And they will probably talk to you and tell you where the other free resistance members are. Gain their trust. And so the pickpocket, he doesn't just don the costume, but he enters into the part very deeply. He practices for a period of a month and then they put him in prison with all the other resistance members. And the resistance members come up to him and ask him who he is. And he tells them, I'm General Della Rovere. And they're suspicious at first. They don't, want to, uh, they don't want to betray anyone. And they want to test. And they test him and test him and test him and test him. And, and, and day after day, week after week, he's proven true and right about everything. And they, they begin to trust him. 
They trust him and they, they more than trust him. They swear undying allegiances to him. When he walks through the prison cells, when he walks by one particular cell, the mother over here in this cell with her children, she says to her children, stand up. It's General Della Rovere, salute him. And the children stand up. The mothers and the fathers come to thank General Della Rovere day after day saying, we know, we know everything's gonna be okay because there are men like you. You give my children hope. Thank you for everything you do. And this goes on for a couple of months until at last he's the leader of the whole prison community. He knows absolutely all of the locations of the resistance movement. He knows all of the names, all of the details, and all of the plans. And the Nazis are satisfied that he knows, and so they go and take him out of the prison. And they put him in the interrogation room. And this is their day. They're going to find it all, and they're going to destroy this movement. It's all in the pickpocket's hands. And the pickpocket sits, sits down across the table. And the Nazi interrogator says, here is a pen and paper. Write down all of the information. All the names, the dates, the plans, the locations. Passwords. He slides the piece of paper across the desk and the pencil or the pen. And the pickpocket looks down at the paper in front of him and eyes the pen and then looks back at the interrogator. And this is the first sign of trouble. Behind him, a guard cocks his gun. And the pickpocket takes the paper and slides it across the desk. Withdraws his hands. And the interrogator says, I'm going to give you this paper again in one more chance. You have to the count of three to begin writing. He slides the pen and paper across the desk again. And the pickpocket looks at the paper and the pen. And then he opens his mouth, his teeth, a fraction of an inch and says, long live Italia. His desk is on the head. It's on the, his head is on the desk and he spills his lifeblood out right there. And he died. No longer a pickpocket. He had stepped into the role so deeply that he died. General Della Rovere. Imitation is a powerful thing. A powerful thing. When I was 20 years old, my first son was born. And when I was 22, my second son was born. And when I was 24, my daughter was born. And I always thought when I was a child that I would figure everything out when I became an adult. I thought, I'm going to know everything. Adults know things. I'm going to be able to be wise. 
And I'm going to have high character. I won't have temptations to lie, temptations to steal, temptations to be dishonest anymore. All of those temptations will fade away when I step across the threshold from childhood into adulthood. That's what I thought was going to happen. But then I turned 18 and I found I was still the same. And then I was 19 and I got married and I thought, well, that's got to be the threshold. When you get married, you're going to leave all of that stuff behind. You're not going to have any of those temptations anymore. It's just going to be real simple. You're going to be one of those great, great adults that you've been watching all of your life. But then I was married and I found out that the, that the same exact temptations were, were there. The same law warring within my members constantly, constantly at odds with what I really wanted to be. When will I grow up? I found out that actually adulthood might be a myth. <laughs> might be. It just might be. I started to suspect that everyone else around me, all of my other uh, fellow adults, if I'm not, def maybe I'm defective, but maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm just like everybody else. Maybe they're just as ignorant as I am. That was quite a revelation. Disturbing revelation. You mean when you get to adulthood and when you're, you're a husband now, you still don't know things? You still have a problem fighting those impulses? Oh. Hmm. And then the biggest blow of them all. My son is born. And then he learns how to talk. And one of his first words is, Dad, now the word dad was reserved for the great monuments, the great men in the world, dad. I had always said the word dad and dad meant real, real near to an angel. And I've got this little boy, as ignorant as could be, looking up at me and calling me dad. I'm not supposed to be this foolish and ignorant. And being called dad, it felt so artificial to me. He starts asking me questions, some of them theological. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I better find an answer. And I'll tell you what. I want, I want to be on three different softball teams. Three different leagues. I want nothing more than for my team to win the championships. I want nothing more than to sit down when I get home from work, kick up my feet, and click the remote, turn on the TV, and watch my favorite team. And I, I want to watch movies, and I want to watch, I want to watch the sports, and I want, I want to play. I want to play. I just thought God, the, the, uh, uh, the adult version of childhood is what I, I want to do. But then there's this one over here that's calling me dad. And it starts to dawn on me as I have my feet kicked up on the recliner and my ambitions are this big that I might be passing this on to him. And does he deserve to go through his life with this as dad? I guess I better change. If I don't know the answers, I'm going to find them. If I, if, I have those, if I have those temptations or those character flaws, I better fix them. And my son, what he did was he, conspiring with my wife,
and then my second son, and then my, 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 my daughter. They all crafted a mask called dad, and they put it on me, and I have a choice. Just be me or dad. I get real, real upset these days when I hear adults telling children just just be themselves. Just be yourself. Follow your heart. Are you kidding me? There's no there there for them. They, they, there's no, they have no identity of their own. They become who they are through a series of imitations. And the only thing that's really authentically themselves is that mask they choose to wear. That's what's authentically them. You tell a kid, you, tell, you stand up there in front of the, at the graduation ceremony and you tell all, the, all of those kids, just be yourself and follow your heart. What, what vacuous advice that is. And so I could give my kids me, whatever that is, or dad. And this is a mask, by the way, I can't take off if I'm going to be dead. I have to wear it not just when I'm on camera, not just when I'm standing in front of them, but when I'm alone. The way I treat my wife, the things I say to my wife, the kinds of things I won't watch and I won't look at if I'm going to be Oh, just be yourself, young man. Raise him. Just No, you don't want me. You don't want me. In me, there's no good thing. There's no good thing. I was, I was, I was born in sin and shape and in iniquity. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? You don't want me. You want him. And so one day, on my 25th year, in my 25th year, we had Father's Day. And you know what I did at the time? At the time, I was uh, working my way through college. And also, I had three children and a wife. And I worked at Burger King as a manager. I was so, so ashamed of myself. My day consisted of handing people fries and ketchup, ketchup. And I felt bad about myself. And all of this is now, I look back upon it, very, very ignorant. There was a lot of arrogance and pride in that estimation at the time. I learned more at Burger King than I ever learned in college. I promise you. I learned more about people there. It was a great job for me. But I made next to nothing... And we lived in a little two-room house. Five of us. We had nothing. Nothing. We had one little tiny escort to drive us around with three car seats in that little tiny back seat. And my wife and the three kids, 
they'd all drop me off at Burger King and I would put on my uniform. My uniform was a red polo shirt, and black pants, black dress pants. And I would walk into my shift and I would go through the 10 hour day, getting it through the evening and then closing the restaurant down. I was so worried at the time that I was, I was going to be stuck there for the rest of my life. Things were never going to change. This is the way it's always going to be. And if anyone ever asked me what I did for a living, I couldn't use enough euphemisms to try to fool you, like a food service expert. I tried all of those, and then when you get it, the embarrassment and the shame is even worse when you're at bottom. Well, where do you work? Well, I'm, I'm in my 25th year for Father's Day. My mother had this bright idea. She's the pastor's wife. She had this bright idea. All of the kids this week for Father's Day are going to dress up in the uniforms of their dad. And they're going to walk up the middle aisle proudly and display their father's vocation and tell everyone how proud they are of their dad. I didn't want anyone to know I worked there. That's not my idea of being proud. I figured this out too late though. I was in the middle of the service sitting right back there right there when it finally dawned on me what was happening because I turned around and looked and I saw this parade of kids coming up and they're all dressed really unusual. One's wearing a hard hat because his dad is a construction worker. Another one's wearing a police uniform because his dad's a police officer. Another one's wearing a business suit because his dad works in an office. Another one walks in in a Navy uniform. His dad's an officer in the Navy. And I realized what was happening. And I wanted to find some hole somewhere to slide down into. I told you I was proud. This isn't happening. Yeah, it is. And there at the, in the caboose is a little boy, my boy. He's five years old now. And he's wearing my red polo shirt. My red polo shirt. So even though it's short sleeve, it still comes down past his fingers. And he's wearing my black pants. I mean my black pants. And they're rolled up all the way up to mid-thigh. But dragging the ground for him. And he walks up there like this. And I expected, well, what would, might that conversation have been like back there in the back when he's being told he has to wear his dad's uniform? My version of what he might have said back there would have been, do I really have to? No, let me wear that police uniform. I know, but your dad doesn't. I know, but I want to wear the police uniform. Or let, let, me, be a, let me be a sailor or construction worker, or a security guard. Can I put on something else? No, this is what you're going to wear. 
That's what I imagine him tucking his head and putting it on and then reluctantly walking in. But that, that isn't what I saw. I saw this little boy wearing clothes way too big for him, the humble clothes of his father's vocation. And he walked in with his chest out and looking all around with a great big million watt smile, saying essentially, my dad works at Burger King. Nobody makes people happy like my dad does every day. They want shakes, they get shakes. They want fries, they get fries. They want a Whopper, they get a Whopper. And the kids, they get, they get, they get kids meals with toys in them from dad. Dad's like Santa Claus and he's like a, a cook and he's, he's just, he's the direct, he's Willy Wonka. That's how he skipped up to the platform. And then he strode prouder than all the other kids across the platform. My dad is Burger King. But there was one grace note that he added. He wanted to out Burger King me. And so he didn't just wear my uniform. He took a crown. The Burger King crown. This was his idea, and, and my mother back there told him not to put this on because dad doesn't wear this when he's at work, I don't think. <laughs> but he said, I want to wear it, and he almost threw a fit because he didn't get to wear the crown, and finally they just said, ah, let him wear the crown. So he wore the crown onto the platform. And ladies, ladies and gentlemen, I learned a lot that day. You know what I learned? I learned what it might be like for God leaning out over the balcony of heaven and seeing what it might be like for his sons and daughters to put on his humble clothes Forgiving the unforgivable, loving the unlovable, suffering the insufferable. And yes, it might just be that you this morning are thinking, are you telling me, preacher, that I need to act the part? See, it sometimes feels like I'm a hypocrite. I come in here like everything's all together. But really, my life is falling apart back home, and I've got all of these temptations, and I might seem all holy at church, but I know in the background, I've got issues. And I've been thinking about maybe, maybe I just need to go ahead and drop the act. No, you're not a hypocrite. You are not a hypocrite unless, and here's, what, here's the difference between what I'm talking about and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy says, I'm going to put on an act, but I have no intentions whatsoever of ever becoming the part I'm playing. You're willing to wear the costume, but never let it get into your heart. You're not a method actor. 
It's only skin deep. That's not what I'm talking about. And that's probably not why you're here this morning. And you know what? When you come up here and you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost after repenting of your sins, and then you're baptized in Jesus' name, you know what you're doing? You're being buried in the likeness of Christ. And you're taking on his name and you're now wearing his mask and you are now being conformed to his image and you have a choice. It's true you're not righteous. It's true that you're not glorified. The part you're playing is. And you can either just say, I'm just going to be myself or you can say, I'm going to be conformed to this part that I've been given. And there are going to be a lot of days where you're going to walk in here and you're supposed to be wearing that costume, that uniform, and it's going to feel too big for you. The sleeves come down past your fingers and the pants have to be rolled all the way up to the thigh. It doesn't fit you. It doesn't fit you. No, it doesn't fit you. Not yet. But one day, one day, the fiction and the reality will begin to merge. And there will be less of the unrighteousness that will be washed away. It will be driven away and you'll become more and more like him. If you'll wear the mask Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, if you will give your children the mask of dad and mom, of apostolic. If you will wear that willingly every day, in time, you're going to become the part you're playing. In fact, it'll no longer be you playing the part, it'll be the part playing you. And you'll start to remind people of Jesus. It won't just be a mask anymore. And the day is coming very soon when you will stand in glory and striding out of the light will be the son of God and he will stand before you and reach up and take the mask peel it off and what will be underneath beloved we are all God's children now and what we shall be it does not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when we see him John said we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is and everyone who has this hope within himself is purified. And we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory.
That's your life I'm describing, and that's in your future. Would you stand with me? parts to play big parts to play will you keep playing it would you I pray this morning that you would be strengthened in this part you're playing. I pray that you would be encouraged. I pray that you would shut the mouth of the enemy who accuses you. And for those of you who might be contemplating sliding back into just being you. Remember your calling this morning. And we know all things work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among my many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Praise God. young man, young woman they're not calling you dad yet but that is in your future now's the time to start that role you are already called a son of God He doesn't give you a part you can't play. For you can. Trial and error and repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness and repentance and forgiveness until we get it right. This is dress rehearsal. Would you come and pray with me this morning before you leave? If you come to the altar, 